Hi, everyone. This is Mike. I have the pleasure today of introducing a Hall of Fame cast for Executive Tools, the Hallmark of the Executive Part 1. We released this about nine months ago, and Mark and I are on vacation, and so releasing this as a Hall of Fame cast. Now, if you've already listened to it, I'd encourage you to listen to it again and think about all the skills and attributes and behaviors of an executive. I'm sure when you listen to it the first time, you're thinking, hmm, there's some things I probably should be doing that I'm not, and there's some things that I'm doing that maybe I'll want to stop. So now would be a great time to listen to it again and consider how far you've come on your journey as an executive. And if you haven't listened to it before, well, it's a good one. So enjoy. Welcome to Executive Tools, the hallmark of the executive, part one. This cast answers these questions. What makes an executive effective? How can I become an effective executive? What skills make an executive effective? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. Well, Mark, if you're a young professional and you look at the top of ex the executives in your organization, you probably notice a lot of skills and abilities that they have and you don't. <laughs> right? That's true. And that's actually helpful in a way because knowing where the gaps are, you can pay attention to those areas of your development and, um, you know, work on them in the, in the years ahead. Yeah. But, I, and I think some people will be surprised, it might help you to know that the hallmark of effective executives is available to all and available to all of them right now. Yep. Of course, you won't tell us what that is toward the no, end. No. So yeah, you got to keep, got to keep people waiting. Yeah, no, actually, I'm going to tell them right up front. Okay. As I wrote this, um, there's a long story associated with this cast. Uh, it's an important cast to me um, because we're right now developing the core concepts in much the same way. If you remember years ago, Mike, Manager Tools, in the first right. six months, we put out all kinds of foundational casts, and then we spun off of them for many years. The details, the exceptions, the underlying rules and principles and foundational concepts. Same thing here. Uh, we're laying down some foundational work. And so I want to be clear right up front, guys. The hallmark of great executives is discipline. Okay. I'm going to do a derivation of that for you here today in this cast. But discipline is available to all of us right now. If you ask me, what should I be working on? Uh, certainly, I can recommend books to read, and I can recommend if I knew more about your career, I could say do this and not that, or pay attention to this, or it sounds like your boss thinks you need more of that. But the one thing you could absolutely work on right now is discipline. Yeah, knowing all the right things to do and not having the discipline to do them <laughs> yeah. is the recipe for disaster. Look, if you want to know what in my last 30 years I have seen among the best executives I work for, and we'll go through all of this stuff. It's not any of the stuff you assume. It is the discipline to decide what needs to be done and then having the self-discipline to actually work on that. Not do what you like to do. Not do what you want to do. Not do what would be fun. Not do what, what some consulting firm says. Not do what the last person did in your job. You must understand your role, understand your organization's role in society, and determine from those things what the organization expects of a person in your role, and whether you like it or not, you do it. That is professional discipline, and that's essentially 
the outcome of this cast. Now, I, I didn't mean to write the cast in terms of this, oh, we'll have a big reveal at the end. And so when I ended up writing it and realized it had a big reveal at the end, I said, no, I'm not going to do that to the high Ds in the audience. I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer right up front. But for those of you who want to stay at the end of this cast, I'm going to explain to you how this cast came into existence. And I'm going to give you a little bit more context uh, that won't be in the show notes, but for those of you who are licensees, and if you're listening to this cast, you are a licensee, uh, it will be in the transcripts that will be posted and will be searchable by you now that we have new functionality on the website whereby in the search bar, when you search on something, if you're a licensee and you're logged in, you're also searching everything's item from history and also all the transcripts and all the show note documentation as well, all the actual written show notes. And if you're not a licensee, not that you aren't, but if you weren't, you would only be able to search the site, I think, yeah. Mike, and some other stuff. One of the key things on the transcripts, just folks, just so you're clear, we're not posting the transcripts. The transcripts are a means of indexing into the audio. So you are, in fact, searching Great for the point. words yeah. Mark or Mike, <laughs> mainly Mark, says, and then being able to find those exact words in the podcast. And the audio player is queued up right to that point so you can find exactly where Something you remember was said on a podcast. You just can't remember which of the thousand podcasts it was, <laughs> it was in. So there you go. Yeah, good. Okay, so um, the answer is discipline. What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> or what's the derivation? So I want to cover uh, five areas. Let's, we're going to talk about business capabilities. We're going to talk about intellectual capability. These are all the areas that I laid out as what people have told me over the years, well, what does it take? And, you know, when we have these discussions, you know, oh, I don't, I don't know strategy or whatever. Anyway, business, intellectual, maybe executives are smarter than us. Maybe you have to be smart to be an executive. Emotional capability, right? Interpersonal capability. And the last one, personal character. And we're going to walk through each of these, and we're going to explain to you the relative strengths and weaknesses of those arguments, and then why, as is obvious by what I said before about discipline, they all tend to fall short, and it is discipline that rises to the top of the heap. And the beauty of that is you can start working on discipline right now. What are your deliverables? What are your deadlines? What are you doing working on something that's not a deliverable or not a deadline? You can only do one thing at a time. I mentioned, I think recently, Mike, I may have tweeted this or I put it in things I think I think, something to the effect of, when I see somebody who's multitasking, I assume they don't have enough to do. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because if they had a lot to do, too much, and then they had to be smart enough to know, based on all the stuff I've got to get done, I absolutely have to be maniacal about being clear that this is what I'm working on, and then that, and then that, and then that. You don't just get to make life a smorgasbord, and maybe I meet some of my deadlines, maybe I don't, but there's just so much to do. I can't, People can't expect me to do all of it. If you're on deadline, if you know what your number one priority is, and you have a deadline facing you, and you know you have two hours to do it, and you know it will take you two hours to meet the deadline, you're not multitasking then. 
It's only when that's not the case that people are multitasking. And of course, multitasking and device obsession, device addiction, and so on are all fundamentally opposed to the discipline needed to be an effective executive. So if you want to be an effective executive, start now. Get disciplined. So let's let's walk through the logic. First is business capabilities. So the classic assumption that new professionals make about differences between themselves and executives is it's primarily about business stuff, right? They know more about business. They got an MBA. They understand finance. They understand all this fancy strategy stuff, or you know, they understand the capital markets or whatever. And frankly, that's normal, right? Mike, Mike mentioned that at the beginning. When we're young, we know very little. And for the most part, hopefully most of us know we don't know much. And we assume correctly that over the years, we're going to learn the business skills we'll need if we ever earn the right to be an executive for wherever we end up working by that time. And you assume between now and then, I'm going to get a chance to learn that. And hopefully, you know, actually the vast majority of people don't know this, that the adult learning model, and this is an amazing thing. Mike, have, I don't know that we've ever talked about this before, this whole problem with pedagogy, lest you think I just said a curse word, folks. <laughs> Pe- pedagogy <laughs> means teaching kids. Peda is kid. Gaji is teaching. So it's what you learned in elementary school and secondary school. And now you're going to tertiary school, which is adult learning, okay? Uh, Or you're out of your uh, university. And and so pedagogy is gone. And now I can't remember the name uh, for the opposite of pedagogy or the continuation of pedagogy, learning in adults. But the adult learning model is not pedagogical. We don't sit you down in a class and teach you. In fact, our conferences, all of our conferences have practice in them because of the adult learning model. And if you think that you're going to turn people around with a lecture, you're mistaken. The adult learning model teaches yeah, you us. you need a podcast for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have, well, we own, the, we own the trademark to that phrase. We have a cast for that. And by the way, guys, if you don't know it, one of the generally accepted rules of professional development among people like us who are in the professional development world is that 70% of professionals' growth, their ability to accomplish more, their capability and so on, happens in on-the-job learning, not at conferences. And look, we say this even though it's antithetical to our business, but yeah, we understand the vast majority of what you should be learning and growing towards happens on the job which, by the way, is not necessarily an indictment of the management uh, training industry, although we are certainly guilty of needing multiple indictments. We might think we stand apart, but the industry in general, holy moly. Uh, Okay, certainly an indictment of that, but it's also much more an indictment of managers failing to delegate. That's how people are supposed to learn. We're supposed to delegate to them. And what happens if they mess up? You don't tell anybody that they messed up. They learn a lesson and they get better. And when your boss says, what's wrong with this report or whatever he said, boss, I'm sorry, I'll get it right next week. I just had a brain cramp, right? And you turn to your direct and go, don't make me do that again. I'm not, I'm not going to fib quite the same way the second time. Um, yeah, that's how people learn. They learn by doing. And 
one of the areas were early in their career professionals. I made the mistake, Mike, of saying young professionals, and I got a nasty note from someone. Now, look, guys, I'm 61 years old. If you're 25, to me, you're young. If you see that as an offense, you've got a problem with inference because there's no implication, offensive implication in referring to you as young. I wouldn't have any problem if you referred to me as older than you. Old is not, I don't think of old as a pejorative. Mike, should we? Maybe some people would disagree, but no. No. Hopefully (laughs) hopefully there's there's some advantages of being old. Yeah, like smarter and richer (laughs) and healthy, still healthy. Yeah, but anyway, so- so I, I changed my thing from young professionals to early in their career professionals. And one of the areas that people expect you know, to get uh, some help, some growth, learning is business strategy. By the way, strategy is so overrated. Oh my gosh. And part of the reason for that is because all the consulting firms sell it. But strategy is definitely the purview of the executives in your organization. And for the record, lest you wonder, uh, there, when we say strategy at Manager Tools, we mean two things, both understanding the markets and the, the world that you serve, whatever that is, well enough that you have strategic insight, how to develop strategic insight, and then also separately, the implementation of that, which goes by the more common term of strategic planning. There are a lot of courses, actually, that I think do a pretty good job of teaching strategic planning. Not a lot of courses, in my opinion, do well with with insight, but I absolutely think it's teachable as long as the adult learning model is involved in a lot of it. It used to be, for those of you who don't know, that let's say a hundred years ago, the training ground for executives at companies that were getting bigger, the modern organization, the size of the Walmarts and the and the Apples and the Fords and the uh, Southern Company and Texas Instruments and so on. The, the modern large organization didn't exist 200 years ago outside of the military, which again is why your organization is structured vertically because the companies didn't know how to structure themselves. So they looked for an organization bigger than them and said, hey, look, it's the army. They're bigger. We'll follow them. And part of the reason they've stuck with it is because it works better than any other thing they've ever tried. But when organizations started getting big, they started growing internally. They needed more managers, and then they needed to replenish the executives. And the place they got executives at the time, they did not have a way for managers to become executives. There was no development. There was no assumption that that person would have a career within the organization. They just assumed they'd hired an operations manager, and that's what he would do. When they wanted more executives, they hired small business people. They went out and found a very successful small business that was run by a senior person uh, who had been doing it for a long time, and he was asked to become an executive at the much bigger organization because he had executive experience. Even if you have a small firm, you can be an executive. And that means they probably had started to have some exposure to strategic planning, strategic insight, so on. How, how I'm going to reach my customers, 
what is happening in the marketplace? What do I need to do? How much cash do I need to have? Can I have some debt? Those kind of things that maybe a manager, an operations manager, or the security manager at a factory wouldn't have the first clue about and probably hadn't been exposed to college classes. Business schools weren't really a thing back then. I suspect a lot of individual contributors now or managers assume that they're not going to be exposed to this. And therefore, they probably know little about it and have little chance of learning about it. And they feel they at least come to a conclusion that they're at risk in terms of being a great executive. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'd go a step further and say, okay, so so they worry about that. And they think, well, those guys, I don't know how he or she got exposed to it, but I want to you know, therefore, strategy is something I don't have that those guys have, and that's the difference between me and the. But in fact, that's not true. And I, I can't even tell you. The idea that strategy is the thing that separates strategic brilliance or strategic capability, strategic competence, strategic thinking, that that is the separator, the discriminator, is false. It is absolutely the purview of executives, but that doesn't mean it's a discriminator. Um, There are thousands of stories of companies who hire strategy consulting firms. Look, McKinsey comes to mind. Unfortunately for McKinsey, as much as I admire them and I used to work for them, the client that comes to mind first when I think of McKinsey nowadays is Enron, so that's not good. But McKinsey comes in and develops their strategy for them, and it's quite expensive. And some of these strategies work and some don't. So clearly, strategic insight, high levels of strategic insight or high levels of strategic planning skills are not required to be a senior executive because there are executives who clearly know, I don't know what to do. I don't have that capability. If it were a capability that you had to have, there would be no business for McKinsey. Now, look, we're not saying here, folks, that developing your strategic insight isn't useful. I want you to, and we'll help you in the years ahead in executive tools. Managers who are being evaluated, considered for executive roles, are often evaluated on their strategic abilities, however nascent they might be. Another area, Mike, you and I both know this. You got exposed to this in your career at MCI that financial acumen is often seen as expertise that the executive has that is somehow special and dispositive of executive life. That I need to have that. I need to have financial uh, expertise. I need to go to Wharton. I need to get a finance MBA so I can understand complex capital derivative laws, and so on, right? Right. And no. (laughs) No. Um, No. It's a mistake for managers to assume that, quote, something happens at the top of the organization, unquote, that allows organizations, quote, to make money, unquote, with financial engineering and clever processes and tactics. Uh, Guys, I'm sorry. That's not how it works. I like to make this clear with the example of Walmart, which happens to be 
easy to understand in some ways because of the stores and the nature of the way it works. And I happen to admire them a great deal, in part for what happens every Thursday night at midnight in the United States. But it's the largest company by revenues in the world. Um, By the way, I will tell you something interesting, Mike. Among some of my friends who are in this business generally that we're in, they were all huge fans of the Fortune 500, always were. Great way to characterize. It's not dispositive, but it's characteristically useful to talk about the size of companies to gain something about their relative success because growth matters to organizations. There's only two phases in organizational or human life, and that is growth and death. And they liked it until Walmart became number one. Hmm. And then they stopped liking it. Even now, they arrange the Fortune 500 list so you can sort by a number of different categories, right? Fortune's primary list starts with revenues, but there has been a lot of discussion about, well, it should be profit or it should be market share. No one said one word about that till Walmart was at the top of the league tables, as, as the British would say. So there is no amount of arcane and ethical or unethical financial cleverness that will help Walmart make money if every one of its stores loses a little bit of money at the end of a financial year. You just can't do it. If all the stores lose a little bit of money, the company ended up losing a little bit of money times a big number, right? And folks, that's why Walmart store managers make a great deal more money than most people realize. They have significant opportunities for performance-based bonuses, work so many hours, include Thursday night at midnight, and are listened to so incredibly carefully by Wall Street, Walmart management, leadership, senior people. Yeah, if you haven't been a store manager, your opinion counts for like almost nothing, zero. There's no way you could say, okay, everybody lost money, but we're going to, what, what's that story? We'll make it up with volume. The, volume yeah, right? yeah. I'll make, man, we're taking a loss on this car we're selling you. I just want to do a good deal for you, but we're making it up with volume. It doesn't work that way. And when you read stories of companies that were able to get through a difficult time with some clever financial stuff, that's about all it can do. It can help on the margins. Now, that is not to say, folks, I don't mean to say right now that you know everything you need to know. No, that's not true. There are certainly more sufficient, but more necessary things for you to learn. Um, Income sources, profit margins, capital deployment, cash management, all that kind of stuff. That's all super important, and you will gradually learn it. But it is not the criteria by which future executives are determined. Necessary, but not sufficient. Is it one of a number of characteristics? Yes. Is it in the top three? I don't think so. Mike, what do you think? Top three? Nope. No, definitely not. Well, this is just witness based on how many executives have no background in and no particular involvement in it. I, yeah, I, it, no fondness for it even. And, and they're doing, and, and they're CEOs. Yeah, it's interesting to me. You know, I, this little side. I remember way back, way back when, early in my career, when I was young, um, <laughs> I remember when the first time I became a senior manager. So I had managers reporting to me, right? Um, I had a budget. I had, 
I, I didn't have a PL. I wasn't responsible for a business line. I didn't have a P I didn't have PL responsibilities, but I had a budget and I had a finance person and I was responsible for managing an operating budget, a capital budget, et cetera. And all the senior managers, same thing. And more and more today, those responsibilities, those even yeah. just the basic Floating upwards. financial responsibilities have moved up to directors, VPs, senior VPs. And it's it's and unfortunately, in a lot of companies, you don't get any finance experience until very senior in the organization. It's very sad. So yeah. I wish it were different. Yeah. We know a couple of companies that it's almost hard to poach somebody away and give them a promotion because they're going to be promoted to a level where they're going to be expected to be incredibly financially competent and they've never even had a budget. Right. No, all. no budget at all. And all of a sudden, oh yeah, here's a here's yeah. $50 million here's a you're responsible here's a for. Billion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be a mess. Really bad. Now look, as an aside here, this assumption that junior employees make regarding the development of business capabilities is a result of the dearth of internal professional development in almost all organizations, okay? And I want to make that point now, and then I want to come back to it a little bit because there's more to this discussion. We mentioned uh, strategy. We mentioned finance. People, the same way. Every organization has a way of handling people operations. And yet, they rarely share the overarching principles that inform their people operations with their mid and lower level managers. There is a general understanding of the results of the people strategies, right? But it's largely ineffective because it's the equivalent of allowing customers to determine an organization's strategy from the organization's product offerings. When I have asked managers to go talk to HR about why are we doing it this way? First of all, HR does not, rarely has a good answer. Every once in a while they do, but mostly no. 90%, 95%, no. But HR then says to the manager who's saying, I don't understand why we're doing it this way. It doesn't make sense. Now, by the way, Mike, I'm afraid that I'm going to go on a half an hour rant <laughs> about it's unfair to say HR here, even though I am talking about HR, but all the staff agencies who report to somebody more senior and then act as if they speak for the more senior person all the time. And so therefore act like they're line organizations and they have line responsibility and therefore line power. And so they can give orders and so on. Not that there are orders in, in civilian organizations, but what happens is when the manager goes and asks, first of all, there's a little bit of like, what? Seriously, you you dare suggest the king has no clothes? I mean, wh why you should just accept, just be accepting. It's easier. Just, just you know, be on your just way. go along. Yeah, just, be, on, be on your way. It's very good. So the manager goes and asks, and HR like, well, yeah, you know. And then the manager realizes, oh, the HR person goes on and says, well, but you're a part of this, so you're seeing it all happen. Yes, I am. I'm seeing it all happen. And I'm probably taking more time with the people stuff because I really want to know exactly how I can maximize the effectiveness of this process for my organization, my team of people, my directs or my directs directs or my entire 5,000 person organization, whatever. And of course, if you had a 5,000 person organization, 
three or four HR people would fall all over themselves to tell you everything needed to know. But they don't. They're not able to describe what it is they were doing or, or, or the strategy behind it. There is not a, a clear delineation from the high level. This is the corporate strategy. This is what we were doing. This is how we are behaving in the marketplace. That's what this means for our people strategy. That's what this means for our people. Um, what's the word? Pay uh, a compensation strategy. That's the uh, th- that's what this means for the people's performance management strategy. That's what this means for the people's performance evaluation strategy. This is what it means for the performance development stuff. It, I mean, yeah, this is all just, yeah. it's not, it's not. And so what ends up happening is managers are the consumers of the people strategy, but they're not attuned to it because it's never shared with them. Now, look, to some degree, let's be fair. I don't mean to be running down HR because I don't hate HR. I love HR when HR is good, and I hate bad HR when HR is bad. Uh, This is largely an artifact of cost-cutting in organizations' investments in people. And I want to, I definitely want to talk more about that because I just feel like I, I don't want this cast to be just an indictment of organizations because it's not meant to be. It's meant to reassure those of you who are managers who want to become executives. Uh, I think reassurance is second, but I'll say it first. Reassure you that the path you may not see to the top is not as hard as you might think. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is not unknowable. And you're not alone. Others don't understand it either. That's the common situation. People don't understand it. And if you think that everybody else in your company knows what the path is and knows how to do it and so on, no, zero, nada, doesn't happen. Okay. So what you don't know and your fear that what you don't know is somehow harming you is probably wasted fear, wasted worry. Okay. The second thing about this is the biggest tool, the thing that will make the most difference. I'm not saying it's the only it's a, there's a whole basket of skills. I'm not suggesting you don't have to be at least passable in strategy and finance when you get there. But the biggest skill is discipline, and that's available to you now. Let's continue with that thought I mentioned a minute ago about the assumptions junior people or new to their career people make regarding developing these capabilities and so on. Most of us have learned that even basic managerial training is sadly lacking. It still astounds me, Mike, that there are not large organizations saying, why would we need any help developing our people? There are people we're supposed to develop them. We will develop them. I I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't. (laughs) Now, every time I say that on air, somebody writes me and says, well, you're talking yourself out of business. I said, no, no. I'm telling you what I know great organizations do. Right. And there are some that do it that way. And 
I'm suggesting that more organizations doing that way is better for the organization. The fact that it wouldn't be good for manager tools is not really a problem. And frankly, I secretly know that some of them will not have their own ideas and will hire us and license our stuff to teach all their managers the basics of management. And maybe they'd even hire and license us, hire us and license our uh, upcoming training on the effective professional to teach basic professionalism skills, along with all the other required video training people have to go through so the lawyers are happy. But it just seems amazing to me that people development is so important and so many organizations farm it out. The classic, and when I say classic, I mean disappointingly normal experience of most newly promoted managers when it comes, this is all part of the people uh, operations uh, thing that go into business capabilities. The classic example is a newly promoted manager is told of their promotion and then to be given virtually no help at all in what is arguably the toughest normal promotion in the world. The toughest promotion in the world is getting named CEO. The missing development of managers carries over into virtually all the areas of the rest of our development of our people. Very few organizations help their managers understand their strategy and explain how they got there. We're not aware of any company that spends any time teaching how the corporation handles its finances, goal setting, income, the various sources of income separated by products, separated by regions, separated by geography, uh, purchasers, uh, um, income levels, and so on. Profit margins uh, uh, of products, of customer groups, decision-making and capital issues, uh, how they manage their cash. This is all teachable stuff. It's all classes that HR could facilitate um, so that the junior people will know what the senior people are thinking about and are dealing with. And when they send them information to help them make decisions, they'll be aware of what they're going to do with it. Cost accounting as opposed to activity-based costing, right? So folks, what all this means about the lack of development, we started out talking about business capabilities and we are trying to reassure you that when it comes to your development to become an executive, your right to feel like there seems to be a gap, okay? And that's an organizational flaw. It's not your flaw. And I will tell you, we believe this is an important miss for organizational development. We believe it is a choice that organizations are making, virtually all of them that we know of, to sacrifice future performance for present profitability. We also believe that investments in development of these kinds of business capabilities would go far in helping employees deal with the growing hours of work and stress associated with performance now thinking. You know, Mike, remember how many conversations we've had in the last 15 years with people out in the field who I asked them, when you think about your calendar, these are generally, let's say frontline or second line managers, how far in advance are you looking at your calendar? And 60%, no, (laughs) 60% of the managers say today and tomorrow. And directors say a week. You know, kind of got a sense of what the week is like. 
you can't get there from here. If everybody's thinking about a week and then maybe the VP is thinking about a month, that VP is responsible for, pro- for profitability every quarter. If you're responsible for something every quarter, you have to be thinking in quarters at a minimum. In fact, if you really want to yeah. get ahead of the game, you need to be thinking in a year. I say it again, I've only mentioned it a few times on the cast, but I remember mentioning it. One of the things that drew me to Procter & Gamble was they said that Procter & Gamble thought like Asian dynasties in decades. That made sense to me when I was getting out of the army. That's why one of the reasons why I went to work at Procter & Gamble. It, look, it, if companies started helping managers develop these sorts of skills rather than just paying for them to go to business school, Managers would see such development as an organizational admission that we're investing in you because we believe in you, because we want you to stay, and we want to prepare you for future roles of greater responsibility, and we're willing you for you to take the time now to do it. Yeah. Now, you might go, wait a minute, we started out talking about business capabilities and uh, finance and strategy and people stuff, Right. Why are we mentioning this here? Folks, it's because it's executives who determine the development plans and execution of the personnel of the organization. If you're an executive and you're not advocating for this now, you're missing an important part of your responsibilities. Now, if you can't get your organization to do it, you can do it in your part of this, your subpart of the organization. You could say, hey, look, all my managers, every month, I'm going to be bringing in experts. We're going to be having class. You're going to learn this stuff. I'm going to teach you the processes I use. This stuff is going to be completely transparent. And then you're going to know the stuff I deal with. And that will make it easy for you, easier for you to understand and potentially to attain. At a minimum, we executives must be developing our people in these areas, strategy, finance, people operations, and so on. Why? Because the primary responsibility of the executive is the long-term continuation of the organization. An organization that creates executives from its managers, as an example, who are not exposed to these responsibilities before they have them. Do you remember this thread from years ago, folks? The manager who promotes one of their people but hasn't shared part of their job with them? That leads to disaster in many cases. An organization that creates executives who are not exposed to these responsibilities before they have them is less likely to prosper than those that invest in the business capabilities of their future leaders. So this initial part of this cast is a double-edged sword. There's a double whammy here uh, around not just what you're thinking now if you're not an executive, but what you can start working on now and why this is important if you are an executive as well. And look, as I said before, even if you can't see how your company, your institution, your university, your governmental department can embrace these ideas, you as a manager, you as a mid-level manager, you as a junior executive can share with your team or your organization what you learn about business capabilities when you're exposed to them. Mike can tell you, I spend a good bit of time on our operations meeting every Friday, which has everybody in the company on it, talking about why we're doing things. And I'm old enough now where I think I can know without looking at people's faces when they're rolling their eyes and saying, oh my God, Mark's going to talk again. And maybe it would save 50 minutes every week on the meeting. But if they don't know the why, they won't know how to deal with the change in the how. 
That's right. And you and I will never be able to retire. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm very self-motivated in that regard. Yeah. There you exactly. go. Exactly. Okay. So that was, that was one of several areas we're going to talk about business capabilities. Uh, the next one on our list is intellectual capabilities, but we've been going a while. So why don't we stop here and pick up on intellectual capability later? Just, just to give people a heads up, I, I mentioned, you know, we always cover the agenda at the top. And so we said business, intellectual, emotional, interpersonal, and then characters last. Business capability is the longest because it was the first one. And I had to make the case for the development topic, which we just covered. So I think the others will go a little bit faster. So I don't think this is going to be more than a two-parter. Cool. Good to know. And then next cast, when we finish this up at the end of the second one, I'll, t I'll share that story about how this cast came to be. And my one regret about it, I will tell you, I have only done two casts with regrets in 16 years. And this is the second one. It's a very tiny regret. There's a there's feeling I've gotten folks over the years of writing more and more and more and more that sooner or later, I worry that I'm going to say one thing that makes complete sense in the context of X, but doesn't make sense in the context of Y or contradicts something else we've said. I've never done it. I worry about doing it, but I, as I write, I don't worry about it. And then I think somebody's going to write me. Every once in a while, somebody writes and says, yeah, I don't agree with this or you're wrong. And I say, well, okay, start your own podcast and put out a million and a half words. And I think I'm right. And We'll see how things fall. Unless you can prove me wrong, uh, I believe I'm right. And usually we have data to support what we're doing. But uh, there's an interesting story that you already know, Mike, but I look forward to sharing it with all of you. Yeah, I think we will find it interesting. So good. All right. Thanks, my friend. I enjoyed it. Thanks, partner. Always a pleasure. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.